Well, good evening. I will follow up Dan's book giveaways with two additional book giveaways uh, that come to us hot off the press from Crossway. Our brother Champ Thornton, where did he go? Champ, there he is. Champ uh, brought them for us. He works for Crossway. So if you are thankful for something that Crossway has written, uh, I would encourage you to go to Champ. Thank him. Many great resources that we give away. The first is Concise Theology by J.I. Packer. Uh, just a, a simple book, a little bit like a systematic theology, but it's meant for lay people like yourself. Again, another book that I challenge you to read in 2023 if you've never read. Who has never read a systematic theology from cover to cover? If you've never read one from cover to cover, I'm assuming that's most of us. Who has read an entire systematic theology from cover to cover? Okay, all right, so if you've never read one from cover to cover and you would like to try, this is a manageable size. Many of them are like this, or multi-volumes. If you'd like to do that with trusted teacher J.I. Packer, excellent resource, this book is for you, 2023. This is your reading, okay? Over to Kate. Fantastic. And then this is for one of our parents or families that are here or somebody who has children in the home, young children in the home, exploring the Bible together, a 52-week family worship plan by David Murray. If you are uh, looking for some help and leading your family in worship, uh, excellent resource here for you. All right, here we go. Front row. Fantastic. If you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Matthew. As you're turning there, the final announcement I'll give before we dive in. Our Sunday Night Theology cards for 2023 should be through the tunnel to the right. There's a little uh, display area that we have right by the tunnel and then over what we call the Connection Center, the bookstall. All of the lectures for 2023 should be online. They are now on the cards. You can grab those members of our church. Go ahead and mark the dates. The first one that we'll have in 2023 will be with Mark Dever. He'll come and he'll teach us about discipling and how to do spiritual good to one another as a local church. I think that'll be an excellent time for us as a congregation to think about what does it mean for us to all carry together the work of the gospel. And we will work all the way through the year and end with the ascension, a doctrine that I needle many of you on in your membership interviews, but we don't consider enough in the context of our church. So I'd ask you to go grab one of these cards. You can look online. They're all available for us there. They are at the Connection Center, right? Okay, Connection Center and then the display area there. So I'd love for you to be able to grab one of those. In his book, Reading the Gospels Wisely, Jonathan Pennington asks us to imagine that we are aliens who have landed in the middle of the Bible Belt in the American South. We have been sent to research the religions of the earth, and we are starting with Christianity. So we begin to read the Christian holy writings called the New Testament. And as we're reading, we find that, not surprisingly, that that document begins with the life and the story of Christianity's founder, Jesus Christ. We enjoy reading the Gospel of Matthew. We find it to be an informative book that teaches us quite a bit comprehensively about who this Jesus is and what he did and who he was, how he came into the world, he lived his life, he died on the cross, he rose again from the dead. But then we're surprised when we turn the next page only to find another book with a similar title called The Gospel of Mark. A little taken back, we press forward, we realize it's a little bit shorter, doesn't have as much long teaching from Jesus. It does reveal to us about the person of Christ. The same storyline is basically there. We're not sure why there are two accounts of Christianity's founder at this point, but we fall off what Pennington calls our alien green chair when we turn the next page to find a third account called the Gospel According to Luke. We begin to ask ourselves, what's going on? 
Are the Christians so confused about what happened with their own spokesperson that they need more than just one account of his life? Or maybe each of the different books represent different sects within Christianity. Some follow Matthew, some follow Mark, and others follow Luke. Undeterred, we continue our exercise so that we can give a faithful report. And once again, we find the story to be similar, albeit engaging, focusing primarily on Jesus and the death and resurrection of Jesus, the central character. This time, though, we are not surprised when we turn the page yet again and we find another book called the Gospel of John. We don't have to read far, though, to realize that there are quite a few differences, not only in the narrative style and in the language, but also in the content. Yet there still remains a focus on the one person, the hero of the story, Jesus Christ, and specifically his death and rising from the grave. Upon completion of John, we find another narrative work, yet we are relieved to find that it is not another account of Jesus' life a chronicle of early Christianity, and then we move through the rest of the book and we realize that there are many letters and we realize that this New Testament document, though it contains four accounts of his life, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, has many other types of books. As to why there are four, we're a bit perplexed and we're confused. And if we're honest tonight, we are a lot like these confused people in this illustration that Jonathan Pennington gives in his book. It is a bit odd if we're reading the Bible the way that we read in most books that we have four yet different and authoritative stories of Jesus' life. Would it not be easier on everyone here if we could learn from the gospel rather than compare and contrast four different gospels of his life? Many of the questions that perhaps you yourselves have had or people that you've been discipling have had have revolved around Well, why does Mark say it this way and Luke says it that way? Why is John like this and Matthew like that? Especially when we consider, as we look at the gospel narratives, that three of the four are so strikingly similar, though they are written by three different people, writing at three different times, in three different places. If you have your Bible, I want you to open to Matthew. I want you to look with me in Matthew chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. And let's just look at a couple of examples. Matthew tells the story of Jesus healing a leper this way. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. This is Matthew 8, verses 1 through 4. When he came down from the mountain, great crowds followed him. And behold, a large leper came to him and knelt before him, saying, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed, and Jesus said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest, and offer the gift that Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now I want you to turn with me to Mark's gospel, Mark chapter 1. And if you don't have a Bible with you, just reach underneath the seat in front of you. There should be a Bible there. Mark tells the exact same story, but he tells it this way. Mark chapter 1, verse 40. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him, and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go. 
Show yourself to the priest and offer for yourself cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Luke also tells the incident. Turn over to Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 5. Verse 12 of Luke chapter 5. While he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, as we read the three narratives, one of the things you're probably thinking is, why did we read all three? They're so strikingly similar. There are some minor differences. Mark mentions Jesus' pity or his compassion. And in both Matthew and Luke, but not in Mark, the leper addresses Jesus as Lord. Overall, though, the story in each of the accounts are very close, both in the facts of the story and the words used to tell it. And yet, they are so different at the same time particularly when we're reading through the Gospels as a narrative and we consider the placement of each of these accounts in the Gospel narrative. And the incident differs from one Gospel to the next. In Matthew, the incident occurs after Matthew's long account of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in chapter 8. After Jesus has been teaching in chapter 5, 6, and and 7, we come to the story in chapter 8. But in Mark, the story appears at the very beginning of his Gospel in chapter 1. And in Luke, the incident is recorded before his account of Jesus' long sermon and what he calls the Sermon on the Plain, which begins to raise all types of questions for us. When did this story or this incident actually happen in Jesus' life? Is this the only incident? Or are they actually telling the different stories in a similar way? Or is it the same story placed in different locations in Jesus' life? Why did they tell it this way? Or were they hurried and rushed as they were writing their gospel narrative, seeming to just put in all of these details with no thought or intention as to where they were placing them in their gospel narrative because they just wanted to make sure that they got everything out? Friends, this is one of the great reasons that people distrust the Bible, is they're not reading the narratives like narratives. They're reading them as a detached series of stories. And the first The most helpful way that we can begin to try to answer this question of why this is occurring the way that it is, is begin to consider what the Gospels actually are. The Gospels are books about the Gospel. The good news of God's salvation revealed decisively in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Gospel authors get their use of the word Gospel not from Paul, but from the fifth Gospel as it came to be considered in the early church, Isaiah. Now, I know that some people might remember our uh, time together last year, but when we look at the um, prophecy of Isaiah, specifically chapters 40 through 66, we see that Isaiah finds a central and crucial role in our understanding of the gospel that is revealed in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The gospel authors choose Isaiah as the avenue through which to describe all of Jesus' life and ministry. So Richard Hayes notes that the evangelists are concerned to show that Jesus' teaching, actions, death, Invented vindication constituted the continuation and climax of the ancient biblical story and that the Old Testament was the milieu for the Gospels, the original environment in which the first Christian traditions were conceived, formed, and nurtured. So as we observed last year in the book of Isaiah, especially in the vision from chapter 40 to 66, it ranks deep in theology as it 
also casts this beautiful, broad picture from which the New Testament authors draw all of their inspiration from the Old Testament. Isaiah 40 through 66 is of utmost importance if we're going to understand Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but especially Matthew and Luke, where we see so many direct quotations to Isaiah's gospel, and specifically for their understanding of that proclamation. If you go back and you just start reading through the Gospels, instead of just one chapter at a time, probably like your Bible reading plans, but in longer sections, one of the things that you'll see is that there are all sorts of direct quotations and allusions and echoes to Isaiah, especially if you're reading in Isaiah. We can therefore, without overstatement, say that the end-time vision of Isaiah 40 through 66 serves as the primary subtext and echo for all that is revealed in the Gospels. But this really isn't a novel observation at all, not only because of last year's Sunday Night Theology or even what we're doing tonight, but especially when we consider all of the books that you have read that teach us not only about sermons that are coming from Isaiah, not only about the prophecies as they're fulfilled in the context of the New Testament, but especially when we think of their impact on Christian tradition specifically. Just think of this time of year, one of the most famous musicals. What is it? Handel's Messiah. And what is Handel's Messiah actually telling us about? Christ as he's revealed in Isaiah, and he begins with what? What is the first song in Handel's Messiah? Now I'm pressing your, your, your knowledge just a little bit here. It begins with Isaiah 40, verse 1. Comfort, oh comfort my people. So if we're reading Isaiah 40 through 66, we're washed over and over again with this vision of God's power and his grace. To read Isaiah 40 through 66 is to not only see his power and his grace, but it's also to see the the gospel displayed as it is proclaimed in Isaiah. The good news of God's salvation, the restoration of God's people from exile, God's coming with his might simply and comprehensively. The proclamation of the fact that God reigns even as the people are kicked out of their land and oppressed by the people who would take them away from everything that they know to be beautiful and true. The beautiful Isianic vision evokes all types of imagery in the Gospels. And there's this reference to Jesus' ministry with these broad brushstrokes in Isaiah about 700 years before Jesus is born of the Virgin Mary. Which is why, as we're thinking of the fourfold Gospel message, recent scholarship has pushed back on older research that has argued that the Gospels were written both for certain people and to certain communities. For example... Which is the most Jewish of the Gospels? Matthew is what we think. And which is the most Gentile or pagan of the Gospels? Luke. So Matthew is a Jew writing for Jews, and Luke is a Gentile writing for Gentiles. But the problem with that, when we come to the Gospels, is that we think that Matthew is only writing for his sect of Christianity, and Luke is writing only for his sect of Christianity, and we fail to see how they are actually telling the same story uniquely that paints a beautiful picture for us comprehensively of who Jesus is. This view stunts our ability to see the Gospels as what, again, Jonathan Pennington calls encyclical narratives that were intended to actually circulate widely in the ancient world. Matthew and Mark and Luke and John did not simply compose their version of Christianity for their constituents in their local communities and think, the only people that I want to read this gospel are the Jewish people, Matthew, and the Gentile people, Luke. They composed their narratives the way that anybody composes a book. That a lot of people would actually pick this up and read it and realize the relevance of this man's life for their own life. 
They compose these narratives, as Richard Bauckham argues, and the gospel is for all Christians, to be circulated broadly and read widely as both theology historicized and history theologized. Now, for all of the theology majors and history majors in the room, we typically tend to think of those things as opposites. History is what happens, and theology is reflection upon it. But in the Gospels, we find historical narratives that are actually recounting how God has moved history. And specifically, one of the things that you'll hear if you're a member of our church, or if you're here with any regularity with us in worship on Sunday mornings, is that God has moved history, if you're able to finish it, what do I say? To save our souls. The Gospels are actually telling the same type of story that we see throughout the entirety of the Bible. That God has promised covenantally to act on his people's behalf. And from the beginning of the Bible to the end of the Bible, and specifically also in the Gospels as we're considering them tonight, that God is fulfilling that promise. That he is moving history to save his people's souls. And the Gospels are telling us about the fulfillment of that promise. That everything that is foretold in the Old Testament is coming to fulfillment in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. And without the Gospels, there would be no book of Acts. There would be no uh, book of Romans. There would be no book of Revelation. There would be nothing beyond the Gospels. Everything that we see after the Gospels is reflection upon the fulfillment of what God has promised to do for his people. God has moved history to save their souls. So the Gospels are historical theology or theologized history that are teaching us in a particular way about Jesus' life in a genre very similar to Greco-Roman biographies or what some scholars say are bioi. As bioi, the Gospels are not like our biographies at all because our biographies typically do what? What is the storyline of a biography of anybody that you've ever picked up? What's at the beginning of the biography? Their birth. And then what happens before the kind of the climax of their life? What does it tell us about in the middle? Childhood. And what else? Problems that they overcame, which typically make them important for the reason that they are. And then it tells us about kind of the central contribution of their life. And then after the central contribution of their life, what does it tell us? <laughs> kind of the end of their life and how they died or whatever happened with their family, etc. But our Gospels don't do that at all. Our Gospels... Some of them tell us about his birth, and then they basically leave out from birth to 30, and they tell us about the last week of his life. So they're a certain type of story, not quite like our biographies, because there are so many details about Jesus that we just don't have in them. What are things that we would expect to know about Jesus that we don't know? His childhood. What color are his eyes? We don't know anything about what school that he went to. We don't know anything about any of these things in his life. But these Gospels are telling us a specific type of story about his life and the particular relevance that it has for us, which is why they leave out of all of these details, basically from birth to 12, from 12 to 30, and only focus on the last three years of his life, and not really even the last three years. They kind of take that at a quick uh, pick, and then all of a sudden we're focusing on the last week of Jesus' life. But they model for us, giving us a certain refraction of who Jesus is and what Jesus did and why Jesus' life matters for all people everywhere throughout all time. And that is why it's important to understand the Gospels to be, as Richard Bauckham argues in his book, Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, as eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus or books based on the eyewitness accounts. Matthew is a disciple of Jesus. John is a disciple of Jesus. 
Luke is a disciple of who? Not my interns or my kids. Luke is a disciple of Paul, and Mark is a disciple of who? So as far as we know, the eyewitnesses, Matthew and John, are telling us eyewitness testimony, and Mark and Luke are telling us accounts based on eyewitness testimony from Peter and from Paul, and they're telling us something specific about Jesus' life that these preachers want us to know. You can imagine it as the type of person who's been preaching what's called a sugar stick sermon. Who knows what a sugar stick sermon is? What's the sugar stick sermon? I know that there are people in this room that know what that is. Dan, what is a sugar stick sermon? It's a sermon you preach over and over and over again. You can preach it anywhere. It's the stump speech. You can imagine that this is Matthew's stump speech. He's been preaching this over and over again, and this is the best version of it. He's been telling and retelling and retelling and perfecting it, and by the end, he's put all 28 chapters together, and this is exactly what he wants us to know about who Jesus is and why his life matters for your life. And you can do that same thing with Mark and with Luke and with John. They have carefully crafted this so that they're able to do it without any notes at all. As eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus or books based on eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, the four Gospels tell us a story, a story of what God has done for us and for our salvation in the person of Jesus Christ from four different vantages so as to help us understand the width and the height and the depth of God's love for us in Christ. And as eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, or books based on eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus, the further away the Gospels are from the events of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, the less reliable that they seem. Which is why most people, when they try to criticize the Gospels, actually say they're not early documents, but they're late documents. They're not written close to when Jesus died, but they're written all late in the first century or after the first century into the second century because they're wanting us to see they're not reliable documents, which is why the book that Dan gave away earlier, which is an excellent book, Why Trust the Bible, those books only focus on the Gospels, not because we don't need to know can we trust Romans or should we trust Deuteronomy, but if we can believe what the Bible says about who Jesus is and what he did for us and for our salvation, we can have reasonable confidence that the rest of the Bible, which is also telling us a story related to him as the, the central figure of the Bible, is also reliable and truthful. So though most New Testament scholars today, both conservative and liberal, believe the Gospels were written sometime between A.D. 50 and 100, it seems to me that there is no good reason to think that the Gospels are written much later than the 60s, and certainly not even as late as the 80s, because we see in the Synoptic Gospels in particular that there is no reference or even a hint to the fall of Jerusalem, which happens in AD 70. So we see one scholar, Wenham, arguing in his book, Redating Matthew, Mark, and Luke, A Fresh Assault on the Synoptic Problem. And synoptic is just a fancy word for saying Matthew, Mark, and Luke are similar. Though I'm not entirely persuaded by his thesis that these Gospels are written between 40 and 60. But he does help us see something in particular, that there isn't any reason why earlier dates for the gospel narratives cannot work in the canon, particularly when we consider the type of people who were putting all of this together, the Jewish people. All of the major events in their lives have been written down and recorded, and that focuses as the backbone of all of their national identity. And we see this even if we're paying attention to the Old Testament. Moses, before he even dies has put together Genesis through Deuteronomy, except for the conclusion. I'm assuming he didn't write about his death before he died. 
And then Joshua is added not long after that. And then somebody comes on the scene and they put together Judges Ruth and the history of David's rise in the books of Samuel. And then while they're in exile, somebody's put together First and Second Kings. And shortly after their return from exile, somebody puts together First and Second Chronicles, that long list of names that we get in our Bible reading every year if we're reading sequentially through the Bible. Are we to believe now that the Gospels are composed by people who thought after the most important event in all of their national identity and history has occurred, when everything comes down to this particular moment and significance for their life and for their salvation, that they decided all of a sudden that they needed to wait several decades, maybe multiple decades upon decades, to finally write down the most significant events in their nation's history. What reason would they have for waiting at all? But perhaps at this point you're thinking, okay, Ray, a lot of this I've read before and that's all well and good, but why are there four Gospels, which is the title of your lecture, and why only four Gospels and not more than four, or why not only one? The four Gospels are, as Richard Burge and Mark Strauss have so eloquently stated, four portraits of one Jesus. And to understand what they mean of the four portraits and one Jesus, I want us to think for a moment another example used by several academics of Winston Churchill. I want you to think for just a moment, do you need to bring me a battery? That nice awkward moment in the lecture. But since I'm not from out of town, Melissa doesn't mind interrupting me. Mm, I wouldn't mind either way. Melissa would interrupt me even if I wasn't. That's right. Go, Melissa. You're awesome. That's right. Thank you, Melissa. They want us to think of an example that many of them use of Winston Churchill. And I just want you to think for a moment. Who knows who Winston Churchill is? You at least heard the name. Excellent. All right. Think of four portraits of Winston Churchill. One of him is a statesman with President Roosevelt during the uncertain days of World War II. And we have these famous pictures of him in a suit. He's in there with the president, and they're contemplating what it is that they're going to do. That's a famous image that many of us would have. But then I want us to go before that image and to think around 1927 in his life in a famous painting called Tea Time with Churchill, where he's casually dressed. He's sitting around a table with his family and his friends. And then I want us to fast forward in his life on the other side of the war, of him in his military garb while he's traveling throughout formerly occupied territories with no less than a cigar in his mouth, holding up the famous V, reminding everybody of victory. And then I want us to go even farther in his life and to think about a time in Churchill's life when he's on a holiday and with not even knowing that someone was taking a picture of him, he has a white painter's jacket on and a cigar in his mouth and a painter's palette in his hand. Are all of those portraits of Winston Churchill. Every single one of those is of Winston Churchill. But every single one of those teach us something different about his life and depict him in a very different type of way. We think of him as the strong leader during World War II, but he actually had family and friends that he spent time with. And we think of him as somebody who helped bring peace in the midst of anarchy and chaos, but he also actually liked to paint. You can think of the same type of thing when you consider Frederick Douglass's life. And if you know much about Douglass's life, you just realize that there are three different books that he's written all about himself, three different autobiographies that were written at different times in his life after his slavery. And if you go and read each one, you realize that they're all telling you the same basic storyline. But as they tell you the storyline, 
they refract upon this man slightly differently. And they help us see contour and depth to his life. Where we think of Douglas only as somebody who's railing against slavery, or somebody who's frustrated with the church, or somebody who's working with women for women's suffrage, they help us see all of the depth and contour of his life, particularly as he's exiled over to England for a time and then comes back. The same is true of the fourfold gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all teaching us about the same person, Jesus, with lots of significant overlap, specifically as it relates to the last week of his life, the last seven days. But they each depict Jesus in slightly different ways and help us to see contour and beauty and depth so that we actually might appreciate who Jesus Christ is. And the only way to show this is by going to the Gospels themselves. Earlier we were at the beginning. Now I want us to be at the end. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew 28. Verses 16 through 20. Famous verses, well known by probably everybody here. Now the eleven disciples went to Galilee to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now two key things I want us to focus in here at the end of Matthew's Gospel. There's a lot to say about the Great Commission. But in particular, what has been given to Jesus at the end of Matthew's Gospel? Authority. And not just authority, what? All authority has been given to Jesus. And what does Jesus promise the last thing he says to the disciples? What does he promise them? He will be with them always to the end of the age. Oh, now keep your finger there in Matthew's Gospel and turn to the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. It's Advent season. We know the promise. Famous verses after the genealogy that we all either skip over or read very quickly and don't pronounce any of the names. We come to this in Matthew chapter 1, verse 21. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means what? Now I want you to flip over to chapter 4 very quickly. We read the temptation narratives, and we know that Jesus is tempted in Matthew. We know that he's tempted in Luke. We're not really often paying attention to the order of temptations, but I want us to think in particular why Matthew puts the order of temptations the way that he does in his gospel and not the way that Luke does in his gospel. Specifically, notice what he does with the third temptation. We see in the second temptation, he's taken up to the holy city, the pinnacle of the temple. That happens in chapter 27 of Matthew's gospel. But then in verse 7 of chapter 4, it says, And Jesus said to him, Again it is written, uh, oh, sorry, uh, hold on, we got, did I skip it? Okay, here we go. Sorry. Uh, yeah, verse 7. Again, it is written, The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the, earth, the world and their glory. And he said to him, all of these that I will, give to, I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. Now, what does Satan promise Jesus? All what? All authority. But he's promised him all authority apart from what? 
Apart from, who said it over there? Somebody said it, they whispered it. Apart from the cross. At this point in Matthew's gospel, Jesus has the opportunity to have all authority. He just will do it without the cross. But if he doesn't go to the cross, what's the problem for us if we're readers of Matthew's gospel? He will not be able to save us from our... In Matthew's gospel, we, he wants us to see Jesus came to save us from our sins. And Jesus has an opportunity to get all authority apart from the cross. But if he doesn't go to the end of the story and die on the cross, not only will he not save people from their sins, but there will be no hope for me and you today, and we will all go to hell. So he tells him, Then Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, the angels came and were ministering to him. Matthew has composed all of his gospel though there are many things we could say about Matthew's gospel, to see that the baby born in Bethlehem is Emmanuel, the fulfillment of everything that Isaiah has been saying to us, God with us. And now, after being born like no one has ever been born, he's born of the Virgin Mary. He's the fulfillment of all prophecy. He's fulfilling prophecies in Isaiah, in Hosea, and a prophecy that no one's able to peg down somewhere in Nazareth. After doing all of these things and being born like no one has ever been born and then dying and raising like no one has ever died or risen from the dead, this one is seen to possess all authority, not only on earth, all of the kingdoms, but where? All authority in heaven and earth. He doesn't just get what the enemy promises him. He gets everything comprehensively by the end of Matthew's gospel, and then he fulfills what Isaiah has told us. He is Emmanuel, God with us, and specifically when he ascends, he is Emmanuel, God in us, always to the end of the age. Matthew has composed the entirety of his gospel narrative so that we might see that the fulfillment of everything that we've been reading about in the Old Testament has come because the people would begin to ask themselves, where is the promise of his coming? Which is why in the Hebrew Bible, one of the things that you'll notice, even if you don't read Hebrew, you can just go look at the table of contents, that the Hebrew Bible ends with what book of the Bible? Our, the English version of the Bible, what's the last, uh, oh, sorry, English version of the Old Testament ends with which book of the Bible? Because it wants us to see that there's a connection to John the Baptist. But the Hebrew Old Testament ends with what book of the Bible? Who knows? It ends with Second Chronicles, with Chronicles, because it wants us to see that there's a genealogical connection from them to Jesus Christ. And what does Matthew begin with? A genealogy of Jesus Christ. The genesis of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He wants us to see that he's the fulfillment of the Davidic promise here. We see the same thing in Mark's gospel. Flip over to Mark chapter 16. Think about how the gospels are composed and how they're ref refracting differently on Jesus' life. Now here we are at the end of Mark's gospel. A very famous section of scripture for, for us that is often sometimes very confusing to us because there's something in brackets and we don't know what to do with it and no one knows if they should publish it or not. And the answer is they shouldn't publish it, but they did. And part of the reason that they did that is they wanted you to be able to buy their Bibles, but that's fine. So, all right, so we, we see that Mark has, has his gospel here for, for his people, and he says this. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary the mother of James, the son of Salome, brought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, Who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed 
and a white robe, and they were alarmed and said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell the disciples and Peter that he is going back before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now again, flip back to the beginning of Mark's gospel. And Mark does something for his readers. He's answering questions, but he actually tells us something. You can imagine for these people as they're experiencing it, they don't have the interpretation that we have. Here at the beginning of Mark's gospel, he interprets everything that he's going to say to us by fronting the identity of Jesus. Verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He tells us that this is about Jesus, and Jesus is the Son of God. But as people are experiencing these events... They don't know that Jesus is the Son of God. They know that He's Jesus. They don't know that He's the Son of God. And even to the degree that they know that He's the Son of God, they're not quite sure what that exactly means for Him to be the Son of God. We see, even throughout Mark's Gospel, that the disciples, they see in part, but they don't see fully. They see that He is the Christ, but they don't realize that the Christ must die on the cross. And now at the end of the Gospel, He abruptly ends it and sends these women off screaming with trembling and astonishment because He wants to force us to ask a question. Will you two run away? Or will you recognize that the Christ, the Son of God, is the crucified one and He is your King? And if you want to follow Him, He's already told you what you have to do. If any man would come after me, he must what? Take up his cross and follow me. Mark ends his gospel with absolute intentionality in chapter 16, verse 8, because he's trying to force us to decision. But the problem for us is that we don't see it as a narrative because we break it up over 16 chapters. Luke does something similar. Turn to Luke chapter 24. There is much to say about Luke. Luke chapter 24, we're going to begin reading in chapter 24, verse 13, and then Luke writes these words, a little bit longer of a section here. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Now notice this. You like to underline? You can underline it here. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him and said, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to him, What things? And they said to him, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of the company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find the body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels. So we know that the women actually did come back, and they eventually told somebody that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with him went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. 
but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all of the prophets, he interpreted to them all of the scriptures and the things concerning himself. Now, it's important here. We've already seen before. We continue to read a little bit here. It told us in verse 16 that they were kept from what? Do they recognize him yet, even after he's had this amazing Bible study with them? They do not yet recognize him. Now, you can imagine, this is a great Bible study, and we would all learn, love to be there so that we could have the best biblical theology lesson of all time. But he's doing the Bible study. Surely they're learning some things. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took bread, and he blessed it, and he broke it, and he gave it to them. When did he do that last? At the Last Supper. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem, and they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord is risen indeed, and he has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of bread. I want us to flip back very quickly to chapter 18 of Luke's gospel. Keep in mind that they were prevented, then they recognized him. And that should be odd language for us. Because we're at a church and we're proclaiming the gospel. We don't want anybody to be prevented from hearing the gospel. This is why we do our order of service the way that we do. This is why we preach the way that we preach. We want it to be very clear what the gospel is so that every week believers are encouraged with the gospel and unbelievers are confronted with the gospel so that it's crystal clear so that they're encouraged and they're called to decision to repent. But Luke wants us to see that they were kept from understanding for a time. And he says it even at a time when we wouldn't expect it. Chapter 18, verse 31. And taking the twelve, he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and will be mocked, and shamefully treated, and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them, and they did not grasp what was said. It's not until the other side of the crucifixion, when Jesus reminding them in the breaking of bread, when he picks up the bread, just like he did at the Last Supper, and he tears it apart, and he eats with them, just like he did at the Last Supper, and something that is symbolic of the wine that is there at the Last Supper, that their eyes are opened to see on the other side of the cross, in light of the resurrection, that this is the Christ. Luke wants us to see that we actually have to go back and reread the entirety of his narrative and indeed the entirety of the Bible now in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And if we don't reread the entirety of the Bible in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus, we will be prevented from seeing, or as Calvin says in his Institutes, he says that we have to have the spectacles of faith where we believe in the death and resurrection of Jesus So that we're able to see clearly, which is again why Paul says in the book of Ephesians that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles and then the prophets. 
Now, we hear that, and we've heard it so much, we don't realize how startling that phrase is, but we would expect it to be what? Who comes first? The prophets and then the apostles. But he wants us to see that the church is built on the foundation of the apostolic message of the death and resurrection of Jesus, and only with that foundation are we able to rightly interpret the prophetic message that is revealed throughout the entirety of the Bible, which is why he goes back, and from the beginning of the scriptures, he interprets everything rightly in light of his death and resurrection. So we continue in Luke's gospel in verse 36. And they were talking about these things, and Jesus himself stood among them, and he said to them, Peace be to you. I was reminded this morning, I was teaching people at a different church, that one of the things we don't see is that Jesus comes and he doesn't say to them, oh, you foolish people, didn't I tell you that it was going to be this way? He comes and the very first thing he says to a very scared people is, peace be with you, peace be with you. But they were startled and frightened. You can imagine why they're frightened. Not only is that he there, but they had all abandoned him. But they were startled and frightened and thought that they'd seen a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands, again, he's pointing to his death. See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while he still, they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? Again, eating with them, reminding them of what he said at the Last Supper. And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and he ate before them. And then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms might be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance and forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in the name, his name to the nations beginning from Jerusalem. They're only able to understand the prophetic witness in light of the death and resurrection of Jesus. So Luke has carefully crafted the entirety of his narrative to help us see this. Again, another refraction of what Jesus came to do. We have one more gospel to go. Let's turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20. It's easy to know what a gospel is about when they give you a thesis statement. And we're thankful for that. The problem is, is John would have failed most uh, papers because he put his thesis at the end of his paper and your thesis is supposed to be at the beginning of your paper. But John put it right at the very end and he says this in chapter 20, verse 30. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son, uh, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Or you could translate the phrase this way, that you may believe that the Christ, the Son of God, is Jesus, and that by believing you have life in his name. From the beginning of his gospel to the end of his gospel, John wants us to see that the Word made flesh is the Christ who is the Son of God. He is not merely human. He is completely human, but he is also completely divine. He is the Son of God, the fulfillment of everything the Scriptures have pointed to, and he is the Christ, and only by believing in him as someone who is truly human and truly God will you have eternal life in his name. Now, it's a dark night, and it'd be great if we were in the summer so you could look through the stained glass, but like stained glass, each gospel refracts differently the beauties of Jesus, the Christ 
the Son of God, so that by believing these truths revealed in these Gospels, you may have life in his name. Or as Francis Watson says, in an excellent book read this week, Fourfold Gospel, highly recommend it to you. He says in his book, uh, The Fourfold Gospel, a theological reading of the New Testament portraits of Jesus. The Jesus of the Gospels is the one word of God which we are to hear and which we are to trust and obey in life and in death. The Gospels tell the story of a particular human life and its outcome. Yet that life may be understood as an act of communication so final and comprehensive that the whole span of our lives is drawn into the sphere of this singular divine address, the Word of God. And in this Word, we live and move and have our being. This Word is the one Word of God. Although Jesus' presence dominates every page of all four Gospels, it also emphasizes emphasize that he has come from God and is sent by God into the world and that in his words and works, it is God who speaks to us and acts on our behalf. Jesus' presence is at the same time God's presence, which is why Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of heaven has come near. He's saying to them, I've come near. The kingdom of God has come near in me. God is no less present in the words and actions narrated in the Gospels than in Jesus himself. That this is so is already clear from the additional name reserved for Jesus long before his birth, Emmanuel, God with us. And that is why there is not one Gospel to rule them all, but there are four Gospels. The early church had the opportunity to make this easy on us if they would have wanted to. Because they had to wrestle with the same questions we had. Don't four Gospels complicated, especially when there are three Gospels that are so similar and one that is so widely different? They could have combined the Gospels and given us one Gospel account where we wouldn't have to flip back and forth and have cross-references and be confused about how many angels there were and resurrection appearances and who went where and on what day did they do it. But they decided that it was better to preserve the fourfold Gospel witness that focused on not only the central character, Jesus, but the central message, his birth, and then the last week of his life, his death and resurrection, and then ascension, while also rejecting all of the potential additions of so-called gospel narratives that were just apocryphal expansions of the beginning or the ending of the canonical gospel narratives. I know at this point that many of you have either heard of and are therefore a little bit familiar with Gospels like the Gospel of Thomas, or have read some of these documents yourselves. But one of the things that makes them so distinct and so clearly not Gospel is that they don't focus on Jesus the same way that the other Gospels do. They focus on either details at the beginning of his life in the first several years of his life, and they tell us all of these fanciful stories about what Jesus did with clay and all these wonderful things that are just miraculous in some sense, or they focus on extra appearances at the end of his life. So the early church, faced with these same decisions, said, these are clearly not the right message. But these, that focus on the central character and the central message, help us see more clearly and with depth, a little bit like a diamond when you hold it up into the light and you're able to see more light and beauty in different ways. They refract truth. The fourfold gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, 
were selected from this wide range of gospel literature to serve as a basis for the church's preaching and teaching and worship. Four portraits telling us about one Jesus preserving all of that legacy here for us. And they help us to see that as we approach the fourfold witness in Scripture, that they're not simply biography for both, uh, so that we might know details about Jesus' life, but they are revelatory epistemology. It's a big hyphenated word to say they are revealing something to us about what we are to think so that we can know God because the central message for all of them, Matthew 4, 17, is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And they all force us to a decision. What will we do when we encounter this revelation? I want you to turn with me to Matthew's gospel again, Matthew chapter 7. The Sermon on the Mount. And probably the most famous section of the most famous gospel historically. We find this very famous story at the end of Matthew's gospel. As he's teaching us about how people respond to this revelation that comes in Jesus. And we read these words in chapter 7 verse 24. Everyone who then... Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall, because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man. Who has built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. Matthew wants us to see exactly what John wants us to see that the blessed life, as we see at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, blessed is the person, blessed is the person, blessed is the person is the person who rightly responds to the revelation of God in Jesus Christ by building their life on Jesus' life, building their life on Jesus' teaching. And it's literary readings of the gospel that take them as not only narratives in and of themselves, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but a fourfold story that are telling us something about Jesus Christ that help us take the gospels as they are. Gospel, good news narratives that are preaching to us a story. And they're telling us a story of how God has moved history to save our souls. And they're not doing it with propositional language. It's important for us to see that the Gospels are not like the Book of Romans, as great as the Book of Romans is. The Book of Romans is fantastic. And it tells us so much about our faith and justification and how we need to know God and what God has done as he passed over former sins and decisively acted on our behalf. But the Gospels, like the majority of the Bible, don't lay out a list of propositions. They tell us a story about a God who sent his son and the son who lived a perfect life. And after living that perfect life, died a substitutionary death for people who were rejecting him. So that if they would believe in him, they would have everlasting life. Brothers and sisters, we read the Gospels wrong when we read them like the book of Romans. Because they're not proposition, they are story. They're telling us a story, but they only tell some of the story. 
we have to read them and realize that there are lots of things that they choose to not tell us. John tells us this in John 21, 25. Now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. Now on one level, I think we should take that literally and realize that of the publication of books, there is no end. Anybody who wants to publish anything, no matter how nonsensical it is, even about a flat earth, can get a book published, right? But we also need to take that metaphorically. John is saying, there's all kinds of things we could say about Jesus, but we have chosen to tell you some things for a very particular purpose, that you might realize that he was born to die, and that last week of his life is very significant for you and everybody else around you. They tell us part of the story, and they refract more truth as we not only reread them, but reread them together, which again is something we should observe when we pay particular attention to the fact that one person who wrote two books in the New Testament has their books separated. Luke wrote an additional volume. What did he write? He wrote the book of Acts. But even in our English uh, canonical arrangement, we see that Luke, it was more important to group Luke with Matthew and Mark than it was to group Luke with Acts. And it was important to not only have him with Matthew and Mark, but to have John in between so that the message of Jesus could be told uninterrupted so that we might see this bridge, as Dan highlighted for us earlier, to everything that the Old Testament has revealed and everything that the New Testament would teach us. Why are there four Gospels? So that we might see more clearly and more beautifully what Jesus Christ has done. I think that's why there's four Gospels. Why are there only four Gospels? Because these four, unlike anything else in the ancient world, testified specifically to the central character, Jesus Christ, and the central message of his life, the final week of his life, where he did something for you and I that we could never do for ourselves. So that we might realize, in particular at this time of year, that the sole purpose of his incarnation, as Calvin says in the Institutes, was our redemption. The baby was born to die so that we might have everlasting life. All right, questions? So we have microphones on the sides here. Interns will be bringing them out. If you have a question, please head over to one of those microphones. Um, I have a question while people are thinking about it, while they're getting set, um, just to start us off. Did the gospel authors read one another and copy from one another? Yeah, that's an excellent question. Uh, all right, so there's a lot to say about this question in particular. Did the gospel authors read one another and did they copy from one another? Uh, there are a lot of very unhelpful things that are said about a source called Q because they're trying to make sense of how is it that three, uh, why are four Gospels so similar and three of them in particular so similar yet so different? Q does not exist. No one has ever seen it. And I think at least as one author who probably was a little hyperbolic said there's a little bit of truth to the fact that in many ways it's a satanic attack upon the church because it makes us think a lot of false things. Probably a more helpful way to understand how the gospel authors used each other is that Mark wrote first, and Matthew, looking at Mark, saw many of the core aspects that he needed to also include as he's writing and kind of rounding out his gospel and included some additional things. And Luke, aware of Mark and Matthew, 
change some things as well. And John just does his own thing on Patmos, you know, many years later, right? So John's just kind of like, he's like, you know, 80s grunge music or something like that in Gospels. Um, but we, we see that they, they are probably familiar with each other, which is why it's important for us to see that phrase that uh, Jonathan uses in his book, encyclical narratives. They did not mean for their narrative to be written only for this group of people and somebody else wrote for this group of people and somebody else for this group of people. But they intended their gospels to be circulated. And as they're being circulated, they would have become aware of each other's writings and preaching. And that's not something that's foreign letters are being passed around. We see that in Paul's writings. As he's writing to the Colossians, he's telling us about letters that are going to Laodicea and that they need to read that letter too. And they need to pass this letter on to those churches there. So I think a more helpful way is to see, uh, most, most scholarship would say Mark was written first, then Matthew, then Luke, then John. Uh, and even though we have them, we are often confused by the fact that Mark is, or Matthew is first in our gospel. That means he wrote first and then Mark was just trying to hurry up and get something out and Luke wasn't trying to hurry something up. Is that they were relying on each other uh, in some way where they're dependent upon each other a little bit. Because they tell the central message. Great. All right. So we'll start with David over there. Hi. Um, so how would you respond to someone who kind of hears what you're saying and say, okay, I get it, but what about apparent contradictions in the details of the gospel? If the Bible's infallible, then why does, for example, Mark talk about one demon-possessed man after Jesus calms the storm, and Matthew talks about two demon-possessed men after Jesus calms the storm? Yeah, no, those are great questions, and again, another really helpful exercise, David, for you or anybody asking questions like that for apparent contradictions would be to either read the book that Dan gave away earlier, Why Trust the Bible by Greg Gilbert, or I think an even more helpful book uh, is Peter Williams' book, what's it called? I Make You All Read It. Why we trust the Gospels. We, uh, we trust the Gospels. I make them read it. Can We Trust the Gospels, Peter J. Williams. There we go. That's the title. I've read the book. I don't remember the title uh, but, but what he helps us see is that these often apparent contradictions are actually just, again, when we think of this idea of them refractions or like stained glass windows, it's them telling the story their way. So Mark, and you referenced Mark and Matthew or Luke and Matthew. Mark, Mark and Matthew. Mark does not say there was only one and not two and Matthew's wrong. And Matthew does not say Mark was wrong, there were actually two. What he says is he just tells us the story the way that he wants us to do it because he's trying to communicate a particular point to us. And he wants us to, to be forced to a decision as he as an author is driving it. If we don't read – so uh, maybe another helpful way to see it is not only did the early church not just say, well, we're only going to take one gospel and we're going to kind of cut them up and have one big gospel book. Uh, we also see that the, the early church, by keeping four separate gospels – did not harmonize them in the sense where they're trying to say, okay, this is the way that they need to be written so that you understand what seemed to be the apparent contradictions. They thought it was more valuable to say, let's let Mark tell the story the way that Mark wants to tell it. Not saying that there weren't two people, but it was just easier for him to communicate what he's driving at literarily with the way that he's constructed it. And I think that there's lots of examples in Mark and Luke and Matthew in particular of how they've structured their narratives, placement of where they come. You even see this with the Gospel of John. Something very early in the Gospel of John uh, is the temple cleansing. And that makes many people think, oh, there were two temple cleansings in Jesus' life. 
But anybody who knows anything about the ancient world knows that there's no way that there were two temple cleansings. As soon as Jesus would have walked into the temple and flipped everything over and called it a den of robbers, everybody there would have wanted to kill Jesus because the temple symbolized the presence of God. But John has a purpose of taking that and moving it forward as he's writing in what we call the book of signs, as Jesus is revealing himself to the people before the book of glory, which focus on these special I am statements in John's gospel. They kind of overlap between the two books, but a little bit there. So I I think rather than seeing them as apparent contradictions, we just need to say, why does Mark tell me the story this way? Rather than saying, how does Mark reconcile with Matthew? And then we read Matthew and say, and how does Matthew help round out my understanding of what Mark did rather than contradict what Mark said? Does that make sense? That's an excellent question. Yeah, Ken. Hi, Dr. Johnson. I want to thank you for coming coming to Westchester tonight. You know, it was, thank you so much. I made it down the stairs pretty quickly. So. <laughs> thank you. Uh, what, what do we make of those passages like at the end of Mark that apparently aren't in the majority of the manuscripts that we have? And you mentioned it briefly, but what do we, what do we make of them? Um, where, the, where do they come from? Etc. Yeah, excellent question. Again, oh, all right, so I said it a little tongue-in-cheek, but I kind of mean it. Uh, the, the reason that modern publishers keep those texts that are in brackets in your Bible, Mark 16, 9 and following, you have this in John 7, 51 through 8, 11, you have it a couple different places. The reason they keep those in your Bible uh, is because if they took them out, then people would say, look, they're just taking things out of the Bible. The reason that people would say that is... The King James Version of the Bible was the dominant English translation for so much time and provided so much continuity. And that was so incredibly helpful that as textual manuscript evidence continued to develop and they were able to see that it wasn't just a single text but a variety of texts that gave us a clearer picture of what the earliest manuscripts were like, they just left those in there. And this is what I mean by that. The King James Version of the Bible is a translation of a probably 12th century Byzantine manuscript because it was a whole manuscript of of the Bible. And so they didn't have to look at a variety of different texts. They just had a 12th century Byzantine manuscript, had everything, and then they translated it. The problem is, is that Jesus lived in the first century. And there were lots of manuscripts before the 12th century. So when we do the better research, and there's lots of excellent research, you can trust your Bible. And I still think the King James Version of the Bible is a great translation of the Bible. If you like the King James, it's a great translation of the Bible. It does a lot of good for a lot of people. Please keep reading it. So I'm not trying to knock the King James. We have the blessing to have so many good translations. But the more research that we've done, we've begun to realize that as we look back earlier to manuscripts from the first century, the second century, the third century, and they pile up. We have more manuscript evidence from that time period than you do that, uh, you know, that uh, Socrates was a person or Thucydides wrote the histories that he did or Tacitus. That all of that manuscript, we see some of these texts that are in that 12th century Byzantine manuscript actually aren't there, like the longer ending of Mark or that story in the middle of John's Gospel. In some of the early manuscripts, it's not only not in that place in John's Gospel, But it's actually in Luke's gospel. It's in different places in John's gospel, and it's in Luke's gospel. So I think that we just look at those texts and say, at least for John 7, 51 through 8, 11, that's probably a true story, probably happened, 
Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John didn't think that it was necessary to, to tell their story the way that they did. And if you go read John 7, 50, and just jump to 8, 12, the story actually just kind of reads seamlessly. In Luke's gospel, or sorry, Mark's gospel, what happens is that people, as they're looking at Matthew's gospel and they're looking at John, they're thinking, well, man, it can't finish like this. We're supposed to go into all the world and tell the nations. So probably somebody well-meaning went and basically added a marketing version of a great commission with some other weird stuff about snake bites, right? And, you know, like, who knows? Maybe they were hanging out with John on Pass. But, you know, they, they added that later because they didn't like the way the story ended. But the problem is, is that they miss the point of the way that Mark wrote his gospel. Mark wants to force us to this point to say, will you too run away with fear and trembling? And if we stop at verse 8, we actually get the point. He's the Christ, the Son of God. And there's two responses. You either respond by walking in faith or you run away from Christ. And we'd say that that's the same way that we preach the gospel today. You either respond in faith or you turn away. You turn toward him in repentance and faith and you turn away from him in repentance and faith. So I, I think that we shouldn't distrust our English Bibles. I think that we should just realize that uh, good scholars who've worked on Crossways edition of the ESV or the H now the CSB, the KJV, the NKJV, the NLT, the NIV, there's we have the blessing of so many scholars who've been able to do so much work. And just one other quick blessing for this is you yourself, if you don't trust them, you should trust them. Okay, right? What do you know about Greek and Hebrew? Right? You know, but you you should trust them. You can actually go online and you can look at all these manuscripts and they have like all of these really beautiful pictures that you can now go and you can, even if you can't read the Greek, they have like all these neat footnotes where you can read it in English and see, hey, this is why this wasn't here. And this is the earliest dated manuscript that we have. And all of that's available online. That's one of the blessings of the internet. So that's an excellent question. I hope that, does that help? Definitely, yeah. It's helpful, thanks. So we still have some time for some more questions. Scott, you coming up with one? Great. Raymond, in your preparation for tonight, what has been a great blessing from your study personally, for your family, and for the church? Yeah, um, well, rereading, yeah, this, those are great questions for myself personally, my family, and for the church. Uh, rereading uh, on the fourfold gospel in this book this week just reminded me once again of the value of reading the Bible literarily. Uh, it is so easy. I often do the McShane Bible reading plan where I'm just reading a chapter at a time in four different places, right? If you know that plan, it's a pretty intense plan. You read through the New Testament twice. You read through the Psalms and Proverbs twice and the Old Testament once. That's great. Please do that if you do things like that. But rereading, it reminded me, okay, I also need to read these large chunks. I've said that to people, but I personally need to keep doing that to see the, the contour that comes when we read the large chunks, things that you miss when you don't read a story like a story. So you just think of like, you know, The Lord of the Rings or Harry Potter, if you like reading Harry Potter. If not, then I didn't say that. It's a bad book. Um, but like, you know, whatever makes you happy, I said it. Uh, you know, like if you're reading stories th those ways, you, you need to read stories from beginning to end and allow the story to kind of draw you in, right? Nobody goes to the end of the story and says, okay, that's it. Uh, you know, they, they actually read the story and they get immersed in the story, which is why biography and these things, they, they grip us because they tell us the story of someone's life. So that's personally was really helpful to me. When I think of the fourfold gospel and just thinking of uh, how to think about this for my family, I really want my kids to see that too. And really the only way to do that 
is one, I think, to read story to your kids so that they learn the sensibilities of story and narrative so that they can bring that to reading the Bible. Uh, the, interpreting the Bible is a science in some sense. There's right ways and wrong ways. But it is also an, an art that happens as we learn how to read, right? Uh, or to think of it like this to maybe help the teachers in the room, especially those who love literature and things like this. You can read... You know, the Theban plays and be like, I read the Theban plays, right? The ancient Greek plays, if you don't know what those are, totally worth your time, go read the Theban plays. But you can miss all of the metaphor in the Theban plays. You're like, I read every word and I remember nothing and got zero out of it, right? And so, well, we often read the Gospels like that. We're like, I read every word and I understood nothing, you know, like the disciples, right? You know, we, what we actually want to be are the disciples in the books of Acts, where I was like, and they could tell that men who had not studied that they were seen as learned, right? Like, that's what we want to be. Um, so it helps me to realize, like, hey, I need to teach my kids that. And, and we need to read story and teach them how to be immersed in story so that they would be caught up in, in a story. I think that that actually overlaps kind of on both points for, for the church. Uh, we hurt the gospel and stunt the gospel when we communicate it only as propositional revelation. There are propositional truths. God is triune. Jesus is the Christ, right? <laughs> like, like those things, like, like we have to believe those, those things. If you don't believe that Jesus is truly God and truly man, you're not a Christian. If you don't believe that God is three and one, you're not a Christian, right? But the majority of our Bible is a story. And in our modern kind of apologetic, defensive posture, we're like, give me all of the facts, and then I will refute all of the people who have worse facts than me, and I will do that by overwhelming them with more facts, right? But that's actually not how the Bible comes to us. The Bible comes to us in a story, which is what makes sometimes actually a really good exercise if you're struggling with that, are to read some really good children's Bibles, uh, you know. Not everybody likes everything about every children's Bible. They're not infallible, but I'm just saying they help. Like the Jesus Storybook Bible, Kevin DeYoung's Bible, Dave Helm has an excellent Bible, God's Big Picture Storybook Bible. Like there are lots of good children's Bibles that they clip through the Bible pretty quickly and they tell us the story. And that really helps us as we're reading and we get bogged down in Chronicles or a place like that. We're like, oh, these names matter because they're telling me about a particular storyline, Right? If I don't have these names, I'm not going to get to Jesus. And if I don't get to Jesus, I'm going to go to hell. All right, so I think that it helps me help my church by helping them realize, like, that's a better way for us to read the Bible congregationally, which probably means my preaching at times has been unhelpful when I'm too slow through some books of the Bible. And I think we should preach verse by verse, expositionally, verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible, but... Another really good exercise for us would be able to take large, huge chunks or whole books of the Bible at a time and quickly move through them so that we get the story in a different way. I think there's probably ways that I can help my church a little bit. It's a great question.